God's word says, Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in his ways and keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. May he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered his peace offerings to the Lord, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. The same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings. So Solomon held the feast at that time, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God seven days. On the eighth day he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord has shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, And do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Let's pray. Father, your son took five loaves and two fish, and he fed a multitude, so they were satisfied and had some left over. Would you now take these meager offerings these words of a mere mortal and use them to feed your people that they might delight in you, that they might know you and savor you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, we tend to view the future with either 
two extremes. We're either overly optimistic or overly pessimistic. If you have friends from other countries who often comment on how Americans have a very eager and optimistic approach to the future, we tackle almost any task. We're children of the Enlightenment that believe with human ingenuity, human effort, we can overcome all. We can win world wars. We can defeat diseases. We can travel to the moon. And we've done all that. Our romantic stories even end with the line, they lived happily ever after. Yet alongside that optimistic view of life and the future, there exist pessimistic thoughts. More and more Americans think the future looks bleak. That perhaps no hard work can get through the challenges that are in front of us. Our European friends had these optimistic thoughts crushed decades ago by not one, but two devastating wars. Thus, enlightenment hope gave way to postmodern despair. Everyone was not depressed, per se, but they lost hope of progress. They saw no meaning to the universe. We're just molecules of time and chance that will go to nothing. There's a great series by Francis Schaeffer entitled, How Should We Then Live? And in that, he shows how these thoughts gave way to artists and what they produced. You may be familiar with Jackson Pollock and his paintings where he suspended ropes and then he put buckets of paint that he punched holes in and then he would shake the ropes so that the paint would drop randomly on the canvases because he was trying to show the universe is meaningless. There's no order, just like these canvases. What goes on them? Whatever shakes out. Or John Cage, the musician, trying to also express these ideas in his art, created an instrument which would randomly come up with notes. And, as you might guess, it led to pretty chaotic and orderly songs. Disorderly songs that were just jarring to your mood, to the music. Or Pablo Picasso, they're a very talented painter, often painted things very fragmented, trying to say life has no order, has no coherent meaning. Life is disorderly. These men were not unskilled. They were very skilled, but they were trying to show life is meaningless. Life has no hope. And yet that raises the question, should we look at the future with optimism or with pessimism? Solomon and Israel here are facing a similar question because as they wrap up the dedication of the temple, the question is, is the future going to have peace and prosperity or is it going to have trouble and ruin? And Solomon's prayer and the events that follow show that things will go well if they realize that it is founded on God. We see that in the first seven verses. Then what they need to do is respond to God with sacrifices, verses 62 through 66. And then the beginning of chapter 9, they need to continue to respond to God with obedience. But we begin here with Solomon showing them, showing us that we need to found our life, make the foundation God himself. Just to briefly remind you what's going on, King David wanted to build a temple, a house for the Lord, and God blessed his desire, but said, no, this shouldn't happen through you, it should happen through your son. So he saw in the early chapters of Kings that the throne was passed to his son Solomon. And then David then gave him words of wisdom, and the nation celebrated. Then in chapter 3, God appeared to Solomon at Gibeon, and he asked for wisdom from God, and God blessed him because he asked for wisdom and not riches or power. He gave him all of those 
And then we are told in chapters 3 and 4 of that wisdom. And in chapters 5 and 6 we saw his preparations for the temple. And now, after chapter 7, where it told of the furnishings, it now tells of this dedication of the temple. It began with them bringing the Ark of the Covenant in, and then Solomon praying and praising God. And then we saw a couple weeks ago seven things he asked of God. And now we read of the rest of the events of this day, the days after, and then God's response. And Solomon, we see in verse 54, rises from his knees, and he praises God with a loud voice because he has kept his word. He has kept every one of his promises and given them rest. There's no more enemies there's fighting. Every man has food. Every man is blessed. And so Solomon is saying it's God's promises, it's God's actions, it's God's grace that led to them being blessed. And this happened, he says in verse 57, because God was with them. So he continues to say, God, will you not leave us or forsake us? That is their hope for the future, if God is with them. We see this throughout Scripture when Moses, Joshua, Gideon, they all faced major challenges and they were afraid. God didn't say, well, I'll send a Bible verse with you. Well, I'll send someone to help you. He said, I will go with you. It's God's presence that gave them hope for the future. And these blessings will come as God continues to incline their hearts to them. As he continues to be with them and maintain their cause. And not only will they know God, but all the nations are told in verse 60 will praise God. And so they should let their hearts be wholly committed to God. You know, the commitment of God to them, His faithfulness to them, then leads to their response of faithfulness or commitment to God. In other words, they should love God because He loved them first. In essence, what Solomon is doing here is what Scripture often shows people doing that is they are renewing their commitment they're saying again i am going to keep the vow that i have made before joshua at the end of his reign calls the nation of israel together and says this day me and my house will serve the lord and he calls the others will you serve the lord over and over the judges in israel have to call the people of israel back even in the New Testament, we see Peter falling away in the issue of hypocrisy with the Galatians and Paul calling them back. The New Testament churches, which are within a generation or so of Jesus, have to be called out of sin, have to be called out of lukewarmness, have to be called out of toleration of sin. We need continual rene renewal, reformation. Even as we took communion earlier, Communion is a one way, a reaffirmation of our commitment to the Lord. I mean, ultimately, it's his picture of love for us. But by us taking it, we're saying, yes, we are following you. And so the grounding for all of Israel's future, Solomon is showing, is God. It's his love, his faithfulness. And yet, reading these stories and prayers reminded me of the greater hope, the greater blessings we have in Christ. After his resurrection, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
We have the Spirit of God indwelling us so we can know it's not just Ma Moses or Joshua or Gideon. Every believer has the Spirit of Christ in them wherever they go. One of my favorite songs is Abide With Me. And in it it says, I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who, like thyself, my guide and stay can be through cloud and sunshine, Lord, abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. And we have God's presence through his son. But second, while his spirit is with us, Jesus gives us something better than verse 59 asked for. In verse 59, Solomon asked, Lord, will you let these prayers be before you continually? And yet we have something better than that. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding, present tense, for us. Right now, it's not just a prayer in heaven. The Son of God is interceding for you. When I was a teacher, and in seminary, I'd often be talking to someone, maybe a co-teacher, and they would find out I was in seminary. And then often they would then say, oh, will you pray for me? And then they would say something they wanted me to pray for. And I didn't have any problem. I would pray for them. But it always struck me as interesting that they seemed to have this mindset, well, a religious man, if he prays for me, then my prayer will be heard. And yet, every single believer has something way better than what Solomon was asking, a prayer being before God, something way better than some vocational pastor praying for you. You have the Son of God with his nail-pierced hands of love right next to God interceding for you. He hears your prayers through him. He is the foundation for hope that the future will go well. And yet the tragedy in this story is though Solomon warns of those very things. As he calls them, we need to be committed to God. In a few chapters, we will see him go from God. His heart will not be true, wholly true to God. But we're not there yet. We see next, he responds by giving sacrifices to God. This is verses 62 through 66. They respond to God's work by giving sacrifices to God. And they make an amazing mount. 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Now I have to ask, do you sometimes read the Bible and though maybe you would never say it out loud, you think, really? 22,000, 120,000, one day, one altar. Some math tells me that actually just couldn't happen. Come on. And then maybe you wouldn't say that because you're like, ooh, like, then people are going to start asking me questions. It's going to get awkward. But could this have really happened in one day? And I'm going to say, no. And yes. I don't think it happened in one day because if you read it and you see the context, I think verse 62 is a summary. And then we go on and we see it's not just one day and it's not just one place and it's not just one person. 
Let's walk through this. First, let's examine the days. Again, verse 62 is a summary, but look at verse 65. So Solomon held the feast at that time and all Israel with him, a great assembly from Lebohaboth to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days. And yet, that's a little bit vague. If you read in the Hebrew, it says seven days and seven days. So is that emphasizing seven days or is it actually saying 14 days? Some manuscripts show 14 days. And if you read 2 Chronicles 7, 8, and 9, which is the same account, it says, At that time Solomon held the feast for seven days, and all Israel with them, a very great assembly from Lebohamoth to the Burke, Egypt. And on the eighth day he held a solemn assembly, for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days, and the feast seven days. They're worshiping for 14 days. Yet your skeptical mind might go, What? You just... Jump from the frying pan into the fire. First you're saying, this probably couldn't happen. And then you're saying, well, the manuscripts are a little unclear. So now you're telling me the Bible isn't even clear on what it's saying. Well, no, I'm not saying that. And those making such claims are just being dishonest. Let's look at some facts. First, we have to be clear. We have no, that is zero, manuscripts that are original to the Bible. And yet that is actually a good thing. If you've ever seen the way that some people treat some portion of the cross of Jesus or some portion of his shroud and the way they treat it as magical and almost worship it, you would see how good it is that we don't have the originals because people would worship and adore pieces of paper. But second, while we don't have originals, the Bible has more manuscripts than any other ancient document. Let's consider the well-known work of Homer. Not talking about Simpson. The Iliad. The Iliad, a really well-known work, classic. It is preserved by 650 different types of manuscripts. Again, non-originals. Now that is actually very high for an ancient document. That's extremely high. But in contrast, the New Testament scholar Bruce Metzger writes, in contrast with these figures, the textual critic of the New Testament is embarrassed by the wealth of his material. He's embarrassed because while the Iliad has 580, or sorry, 650, the New Testament professor has 5,800 manuscripts. That's nine times as many. Not only do we have numerous manuscripts, but they were also faithfully copied. You know, the claim is often made, well, what you have here is a copy of a copy of a copy. And so you can't really be sure this is accurate. Well, you may have known in the 1940s, some scrolls were found in what's called the Dead Sea area. And up to that time, we only had manuscripts from like the 10th and 11th century. So a thousand years from that time to 1947. Well, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found scrolls from the 2nd century in the first century so another thousand years back that we did not know existed so we now had new manuscripts and manuscripts from a thousand years apart and you know what there was almost no difference even though they've been copied for thousand years almost no difference it's just not true that they are not passing on what was there third there are cases in which manuscripts do vary but it's typically not on any issue that is of central importance. Let's say we were led astray and we thought it was seven days, not 14. 
Would we then go, oh, I thought God was actually not a trinity. Well, no, this is not a central importance issue. Was it seven days or 14? It does matter. And we have manuscripts showing us so we can get to what is right. But of these small issues where there is some variance, it is not on any essential or crucial doctrine of the faith. So we shouldn't hide from the facts that we don't have original manuscripts. We shouldn't hide from the fact that there are some questions on some minor details. But if you remove the term Bible and give all the evidence for what the Bible has and any other document in the world, an honest scholar would have to laugh and go, this is the most trustworthy book that has ever existed in the world. And we can trust it. God has given us a sure word. And the point here is that though many sacrifices are, there are lots of sacrifices, it was a feast for 14 days. We took a little detour there. We're back to going, this was a 14-day feast. Not only was the feast for many days, but if you remember, when we got the beginning of this chapter, we noted that the time they finished the temple to the time they began the dedication of the temple was 11 months. What did they do for 11 months? Well, they planned a feast that was going to be for 120,000 sheep and 60,000 oxen, or 20,000 oxen, whatever the number is. Nonetheless, they were planning this. And why did they have to plan it? Well, notice the size of it. Verse 65, it was from Labo Hamath to the brook of Egypt. Now, I didn't know where those places were. Well, I know the brook of Egypt. But Labo Hamath is in northern Syria. So basically, from northern Israel all the way to southern Israel. So the whole nation, it seems, is celebrating this. Now, as I was look, thinking about this this week, I remembered, well, how can we know how many people were in Israel at that time? Well, when David was alive, 2 Samuel 24, David took a census. And in that census, they found that there were 1.3 million fighting men. Well, fighting men for Israel was men 20 years old and older. So if we just said it was a one-week feast and only the fighting men came to the feast, that would mean there is one sheep for 10 men and one oxen for about 60 men. That would mean they ate about a pound of beef a day and whatever sheep is divided by that many men. Yet if it was for 14 days, and it wasn't just the fighting men, but the fighting men of a generation later, so a larger number, and their families, and people who are younger ages, this really works out to being probably about what you would expect. And with 11 months to plan this, they could work it all out. Thus, the number of days, the number of people, and lastly, the number of altars makes this seemingly impossible number quite understandable. I say altars, plural, because notice verse 64. There it says, The same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offerings and the green offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to offer these offerings. In other words, they consecrated the whole temple. You can make an offering wherever with a priest because we got a lot of these to do. And so it was not just one day all these sacrifices. And so we see that they had this wonderful, amazing response 
to God. And yet beyond finding confidence in God's word, what should we glean? Because we noted a few weeks ago the sacrificial system was fulfilled in Christ. We don't perform animal sacrifices today. As well, we always need to remember we shouldn't take a description in the Bible. This is describing what happened. And then prescribe it as something we should do in our life. Unless the Bible's clear, that's what we should do. And yet while the New Testament does not call us to animal sacrifices, it clearly does call us to make sacrifices through Christ. Second Peter, sorry, first Peter chapter two, verses four and five says, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We offer sacrifices. We offer spiritual sacrifices. Well, what does that mean? Well, the New Testament tells us they involve our body. They involve our lips. They involve our actions. Romans 12:1, a verse probably many of you know, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You may know the song, Take My Life and Let It Be. And in that song, they write about how we want our hands, our feet, our voice, our lips, our intellect, our power, all of it to be used always, only for my King. And so is every part of your body being used for God in His glory? This leads to the second sacrifice we are called to, and that is the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13.15 declares, Through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So this is a response. We're not sacrificing to God in some kind of pagan religion that we're going to make this sacrifice hoping and pleading with you that we'll get crops this next year. This is a response to God, what He's already given us. And so our lips overflow in adoration to Him. Do your lips overflow with adoration to God? Well, the third sacrifice comes from the next verse in Hebrews. Hebrews thirteen sixteen. it says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. How do we respond to the one who gave us his life? By tangibly and practically giving to others. Your first John shows that the words of love for God are empty if they are not matched by actions of love for God's image on earth. Are you known for being a generous giver? Or are you better known for saying, Mine. I worked hard. I put in the time. I was given that. It's mine. Or are your hands opened up by the grace of God to offer the spiritual sacrifice of giving to others? And thus God calls us to offer spiritual sacrifices through Jesus. But he also calls us to respond to him with obedience. That's what we see in verses 1 through 9 of the next chapter. Because after the dedication of the temple, God then appears to Solomon a second time. This is amazing. Very few people have ever had God appear. Definitely not a second time. 
And God here comes and he shows approval of the temple, but he also gives warnings and he gives blessings. And God says he consecrates the temple, meaning he makes it holy or set apart. And he says his heart will be there. And he promises Solomon, look, if you walk in the ways of your father David, then I'll bless you. There'll be someone, one of your descendants on the throne forever. But yet if you don't, Israel will be a proverb and it'll be a curse amongst the nations. The sad irony is that Solomon, the giver of many of the proverbs, becomes a proverb himself by his later turning from the Lord. But what God is showing them by saying, look, even this temple will be torn down. It'll be a heap of ruins. Is he's showing them that they didn't trap God in the temple. He's not now their genie that now he's come to dwell there. He has to do whatever they want. They come give a sacrifice. He has to fulfill it. Whatever they ask for. No, God is never contained. And disobeying him is deadly. In other words, obeying God is deadly serious. And they should not treat it as flippant when they sin or rebel against him. And yet you may know that many people treat sin flippantly. They treat things in life as not that serious. In 1945, the Russian army was bearing down on Berlin. And Del Davis writes that one doctor, George Henneberg, was aghast when he found the Russians had broken into his test laboratories at the chemical plant. Well, why was he so upset? Well, because he went in, the Roman soldiers were playing catch with labs, lab equipments and lab eggs that had been infected with the typhus bacteria so they could study it. Well, what is the typhus bacteria? Well, in 1812, Napoleon's army eagerly marched into Russia with over 500,000 men. But shortly after, they limped out because 365,000 had died from typhus. In 1917, typhus infected 20 million Russians. Half of them died. And yet here are these men. Hey, catch! Woohoo! Go on! They're playing with death and laughing about it. And yet that is how many people treat sin. They play with it and laugh, and yet they're playing with what may kill them. And God has graciously told us, it's not like it's some secret, oh, you're playing with something that could kill you, you didn't know that. No, God warns us over and over. He warned Adam and Eve. He's warning Solomon. He warns us time and again, the wages of sin is death. And yet, many today think, well, thankfully we're in the New Testament. We don't need to worry about this. God is gracious and He forgives. We're once saved, always saved, right? And yet, what does Scripture say? Scripture does say it's all of grace. But let's look at that. Flip over. We're going to look at a few passages as we wrap up. Flip to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So, right before, a couple books before the book of Hebrews. If you get there, go back a couple pages, because Philemon and then Titus, after Romans and 1 Corinthians... So there's the Timothys, Thessalonians, Timothy, and then Titus. We're going to look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. 
Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So God's grace has appeared, but then notice what it says. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So yes, it is all of God's grace, but what does God's grace do? When God's grace enters someone's life, it changes them so they want to stop sinning, and they eagerly want to obey God. So if you're saying, I'm saved by grace, but I don't want to obey, well then, you maybe don't have God's grace. Because God's grace leads people to want to obey, to zealously want to obey. We'll flip over right after the book of Hebrews, then we have James to 1 Peter. Because is what, am I saying that the point is, well, we're saved by grace, but then you've got to save, hold on to that salvation by works? Well, no, not at all. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. There it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So, so far, this is all God's grace. It's all He's doing. He's doing everything to save us. And then notice, we're kept in heaven who by God's power are being guarded. So we're being kept, we're guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How does God keep us? Well, God gave us faith and God continues to give us faith. Faith leads to works and that's why we are saved by faith alone. Saving faith is never alone. Rather, that faith is always accompanied by works. Thus, you don't lose your salvation by not doing good works and living in sin. But if you are living in sin and it is not concerning to you, then you should be concerned whether you are actually saved. That's a very delicate issue because then some people go to the other extreme and any sin, any evil thought, they're going, I must not be saved. I'm condemned. There's a balance. First John shows us we can know that we are saved. We should ask, though, does my sin grieve me? And I'm begging that God would empower me by faith to overcome. Or do I go, eh, who cares? I'm saved. If that's our attitude to what Jesus did for us, then we should be wrestling with whether we are really saved. And there are these warnings. Flip over, last turn, to what we read earlier, Hebrews chapter 2. So go back, James, then Hebrews chapter 2. We read this earlier. There, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, talks about how we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so this author is warning them, just like God warned Solomon, don't drift away. You've been given a better revelation through the Son of God than Moses got through angels. 
And so you must hold on. Drifting away here is the idea of a ship losing its anchor. Growing up, we would, as a family, go down to the beaches in Texas. At least for Texans, we think they're beaches. If you go somewhere else, you might laugh at them. But nonetheless, we'd go down there and play in the waves. and It was great fun. But if you didn't keep sight on where your stuff was on the beach, after a while, you'd look up and you'd go, where are we? The waves would kind of just slowly work you down the beach away, and you could drift away. And so you had to keep your gaze focused on where you put your stuff on the beach. You had to be vigilant. And Hebrews is also warning that there will be stark consequences if we don't keep our focus, our gaze on the Savior and following Him. We can drift away. And that leads him, and then verses 2 and 3, to tell of the seriousness, because he says, look, there are warnings in the Old Testament of what would happen if they neglected. How much more should we who know that it wasn't just an animal who had to be sacrificed, but the Son of God. How much more should we be concerned if we neglect this great salvation? So are you drifting? God has clearly spoken in Jesus. Even secular historians will admit that a man named Jesus lived and was raised in Nazareth and then was crucified. Many people after that said... He rose from the dead. Would have been very easy to prove them wrong. You just go get the bones. And yet no one ever did. There is sure confidence we can have that Jesus came and lived and died. So are you holding fast? Or are you drifting? But all of this really comes back to our original question. Can we have hope for the future? Will things get better? Or will they get worse? And here in this passage, we're being given a snapshot of the clear message of the Bible. And that is, there's an honest analysis that there are some things in this life that we should make us, that should make us pessimistic, i.e. our sin. Things often do get worse. And sin has ruined and marred this world. And so there are parts of reality that should make us look at the future with despair. And yet our situation is not just depressingly pessimistic, thinking nothing good can happen. For God has come through Christ and is redeeming the world through Him. You're like Solomon on the day after the temple's dedication, the question looms, what will your life be built upon? If God is your foundation, you respond with a sacrifice of a life to Him, a life of obedience to Him. Your life is secure. That doesn't mean every day is going to be better. It doesn't mean there will not be trials and tribulations. But it does mean God will be with you through thick and thin. More than that, one day you will be with Him. When all of those sufferings will be gone. And we can say we will live happily ever after. And so as Christians, we have this balanced view. Yes, this world is broken and fallen and many things should make us despair. And yet... There's hope. Christ has come. Christ will come again. And so we don't need to live in meaningless despair. We can live with glorious hope through the risen Son. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you give us that hope? Through your Spirit, would you empower us to live confidently and boldly that we may share and live 
the good news for those in this world, that they may know despair does not need the final word, but you have the final word through your Son. It's in His name we pray. Amen.